You're listening to the Grace Auburn Church Podcast. In this week's sermon, Pastor Matt Dean preaches from John chapter 7 and 8 in our sermon series, Jesus, the Glory of Grace and Truth. Well, we are in week 7 of a series called Jesus, the Glory of Grace and Truth, and we are walking through the Gospel of John. Um, this morning we're going to begin in John chapter 7, and we'll conclude in the middle of John chapter 8. But I want to give you some context this morning of where we have been and where we are going and land a story today that truly speaks to all of us where each of us are at some point in life. Um, Last week we talked about the story of Jesus feeding the multitude of people through a lunch offering of a simple boy with the idea that anything placed in the hands of God can be multiplied and that our life's response is simply to say, here it is, and you can do with it what you want. And that boy looked back and saw a multitude of people being fed from a very simple lunch that when he got it the day of, he had no idea what Jesus could do and would do. We also talked about last week the very crippling reality of fear and anxiety and that relationship with Jesus does not exclude us from fear in life, from anxiety in life. And when the wind and waves were horrifying and when they did not know what was happening, it was Jesus alone that brought comfort and fear to its end. And so when Jesus said, it is I, don't, don't be afraid, we had to come back around this story for a moment to go that even the people that knew Jesus in person, there were moments of fear in their life. And the only response, the real response has to be when we face our fears is to say, Jesus, it has to be you to get me through this very real moment. We had honest conversation about the reality of anxiety in our lives, and today we, we pick up the story of something that I think as Western, primarily American, predominantly in the room, we just don't really have a context for a festival of booths. Anyone? The Feast of Tabernacles? Anyone got that? No? No one's familiar with traditional Jewish culture? Well, uh, I would not be either out of, unless out of necessity to be prepared for you in this moment. And I've been reading the stories and the commentaries of Messianic Jewish rabbis, Jewish people that believe, in fact, that Jesus is the Son of God. And I've been trying to understand Jesus at the Feast of Booths, what that even means. So in some of your Bibles, you'll see at the chapter heading, John 7, Jesus at the Feast of Booths. And you're like, awesome, what is that? Is that a flea market? Is that what, what is happening in this story? And there's so much to understand, but this is a story when the Jewish people with great joy and delight in their heart remember God's faithfulness to them in the wilderness. And they gather in Jerusalem. They go up to Jerusalem for a week-long celebration of remembering what God had done and what God had provided for them as they wandered in the wilderness. Well, you're like, okay, well, that, that makes a little bit more sense now. That's why they're in booths, because literally they choose to be homeless for a week And they construct these temporary shelters with palm branches on top so that when they look up into the skies at night in the surrounding area of Jerusalem, they see the stars that the same people saw generations before, remembering God's faithfulness. That's what's happening in this story. And in the middle of remembering God's faithfulness to his people in the wilderness, while that is the cultural context of the moment, the plot to eliminate Jesus is strengthening. So get this in your minds. The very moment that people are to be remembering God's faithfulness, 
is the very moment that the religious powers to be, the Pharisees themselves, were plotting to kill the very Son of God. Isn't that ironic? That in a moment of remembering God's great faithfulness, they were trying to kill Jesus. So in John chapter 7, we read very simply in, in John 7, 1, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee, and he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Okay, so that's a detail. John chapter 7, verse 1. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, and so it, it says, so Jesus, his brother said, hey, come with us, and, he, and Jesus says, no, 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 I'm not going with you, but we read down later on in verse 10 that after Jesus' brothers go up, Jesus quietly went up as well, too. He just did not want to be seen publicly because his time had not yet come. And in the setting of this thing, there is great dialogue. Could this be the Christ? Could Jesus actually be the Messiah, the Son of God? We pick up in verse 32 of chapter 7. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering and these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Verse 33, Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me where I am. You cannot come. And the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean, you will seek me, and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. On the last day of the feast, verse 37, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, here's the thing about the Feast of Booths. Here's a cultural context that we don't understand. The moment Jesus said, if you're thirsty, come to me, was the same time in the feast celebration where they would go and get a golden pitcher and fill it of water from the pool of Siloam. And Siloam is where in Hebrew it means sent. And outside of the temple and in an exterior temple, this is where the Jews during this festival would be getting special water. And Jesus in that moment, while they're, he's observing this ritual celebration of God's faithfulness to his people, as he's seeing people get water out of a specific place for a specific function to remember God's faithfulness, he steps into the moment. He says, if anyone's thirsty, come to me. Now, this is helpful for us to hear. This was maddening for the Jews celebrating the Feast of Booths to hear. Jesus is saying, look, I'm the real water. You can't get it out of a golden pitcher. It's me. If you're thirsty, come on to me. And living water will flow for you. And they couldn't see it. They could not see it. This morning, God, give us eyes to see what they could not see. Give us ears to hear what at the time people could not hear. Verse 39, now that he said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. If you continue to read through John chapter 7, which I encourage you to do, there's great division among the people. There's arguing among the people, and Jesus' response is consistently, it's not my time yet. He knew. Jesus knew what was before him. I want you to hear this is the environment where these stories are taking place, and as you turn the page in your Bible to John chapter 8, I want you to hear this story in light of that environment. There were people celebrating God's faithfulness, completely blind to the reality that Jesus himself 
was among them. I'll say that again. There were people celebrating God's great faithfulness, and yet people were blind to the reality that Jesus, the Son of God, was among them. Don't let that be you today. Here we are today celebrating and remembering the gospel, the good news that sets us free and secures us forever and forgives us forever between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. And don't be like those people in an environment of remembering the faithfulness of God to not hear the faithfulness and see the faithfulness of God today. Chapter 8. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now, just for geographical thing, this is down a hill, up a valley, across the way. And from the Mount of Olives, you can see Jerusalem. So this is not far from where this was happening. There's the Kidron Valley right here, and here's the Mount of Olives. And at the bottom of this Mount of Olives is the Garden of Gethsemane. And if you're familiar with the Garden of Gethsemane, this is where he sweat drops of blood. This is an olive garden. This is where they would get olives for the temple purposes, and then you would walk up the hill and you would be in Jerusalem. So Jesus leaves Jerusalem where all these people had gathered to celebrate the Feast of Booths. He's talking about, I'm the living water on the last day, and then we pick up in John chapter 8, and it says they went to his own house, but Jesus went down and up across the valley, which is not that far, to the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning, he came again to the temple. So then he went back down. Okay, so he, he was here, Valley of Kidron, up to the Mount of Olives. He spent the night there early in the morning, back down into the valley, back up into the temple. Where pe- I just want you to see this is actually happening in geography. You can go and walk on the trail, walk on the steps that are still there to this very day. This is a real time and place. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. One translation says caught in the act of adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? Now here's the reality. Some people speculate that this was a setup. Some people speculate about why this woman was caught in this act of inappropriate behavior. Some people are speculating as to how this happened, but it really does not matter for us. Okay, the reality is she was caught in the act of sin, and the people that brought her before Jesus were not concerned about the woman, nor were they concerned about her sin. They were more concerned with Jesus. So there's two things happening in this very story. They were wanting to catch Jesus and ready him to uh, distribute the death penalty. That's what they were wanting Jesus to say. Or they were wanting Jesus to not address her sin and thus invalidate his testimony as God. And so either way, they were setting Jesus up to fail in this situation. Roman law would not allow Jews to distribute the death penalty So they were going to either try to catch him in breaking the law regarding the death penalty as a rabbi saying, yes, she should be stoned because according to the law, that's what it's saying. Or they were going to try to catch him in the fact of he was not being consistent with the law of Moses. Either way, their concern was not for the well-being of this woman. But we read it sometimes, and it's important, very important, that we understand this woman's 
situation. We don't know her story, okay, but we do know her condition. Just like I don't know all of your stories, but I do know your condition. You don't know all of my story, but you do know my condition. And here is our condition. Left to our own devices, the sin that we were born with bears fruit all of our days. And the condition of this woman, the condition of my heart outside of Christ, the condition of your heart outside of Christ, the condition of these Pharisees' heart, uh, it's all the same. And the woman's circumstances around her story, yes, they are problematic. Yes, it is wrong, but her condition is common. We are that woman. On some level, at some moment, we have all been in a place we wish we did not want to be, doing things we should not have done or saying things or seeing things or whatever. And here, here's the mark of maturity. And this is what I see play out all the time. The older we get and the more time we have with Jesus, the more fully we appreciate the depth of what he has done for us. And we can see sinfulness in little children that insist on mine, 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 me, me, me. But I'll tell you a sweet conversation to have is with an 84-year-old person who's been walking with Jesus for decades. And at the end of their life, nothing to the cross I bring except to Jesus I cling. And the trajectory of your life should be increasingly love, awe, and appreciation of what Jesus has done. And these people were not concerned with the woman. They were trying to execute Jesus and find him at fault. And the law has this powerful way, this divinely designed way of bringing out the awareness of what is not right and helping us see who alone is. That's the point of the law, to lead us to the Savior he's given us. But these people, they did not see it. It says, verse 6, they said this to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Now, a lot of people want to speculate about what was Jesus writing. And we don't honestly know. But he, all-knowing, could have been writing out the sins of these Pharisees on the ground. He could have been writing out the law of Moses. It really doesn't matter. He's God. He's doing what he needs to do. He's doing what he wants to do. He's doing what he knows to do. Verse 7, as they continued to ask him, pressing him, trying to entrap him, failing to uphold the law or failing to honor the local political law, as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, chances are the people that brought this woman before him were older in life. And chances are the Pharisees and the, the rulers and the scribes, they were aged men who themselves, though we don't see this, we see this, they themselves were quite well aware of their own sinfulness. And this is all Jesus had to say to end the argument. If any of you is without sin, go right ahead. You may throw the first stone. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one. Look at the next line. Beginning with the older ones. Beginning with those who knew their own guilt and inclination towards sin. I love that. I love the detail. 
But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman. Again, when we read woman, please hear it in the right light. It's not woman. Okay, it, this is a term of affection. This is a term of respect. This is a term of endearment, like one would speak to his own mother or sister. This is kindness that just gets mis, misperceived in English. Okay, this is a dear term of affection. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. I want, I want to just give you a couple thoughts on this. They left this sinful woman in the safest place on earth. You ever thought about that? They left this woman unbeknownst to, in their own sin, sinful ignorance. They left her in the safest place on earth. In the worst, most embarrassing, most highly exposing moment of her life, she was the safest and most secure place she could ever be. Now think about your life. In the total exposure of your own sin and mine, the best place to be is before a holy God. Why? Because there is no one else who has done what he has done to bring you home. In the worst, most inappropriate moment of her life, she was met with the reality of the holiness of God. And be real clear to hear what I'm saying. He does not minimize her sin. He does not ignore her sin. He says, therefore, go and sin no more. So please don't hear me in the wrong light. Our choices matter every single day. What we do with our lives is very, very important. The gospel, the shed blood of Jesus, the offering of Jesus on the cross should lead us to a life of increasing holiness and right decision making. That's the power of God's grace at work in and through our lives. And the more we come to understand what Jesus has done, the more we hate the reality of sin in our lives. This is not Jesus being light on sin. This is Jesus saying, may God's grace go before you because grace precedes change. Think about what you were before you put your faith in Christ. Think about that for a second. Grace precedes change. And as you read these gospel stories of what Jesus did with different people, it's always the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. And it's the kindness of God in my life that has led me to repent and change. It's the kindness of God in your life that leads you to repent and change. And Jesus addresses the woman, has no one condemned you? Neither do I. If you go back to the very beginning of John, this is what it says, chapter 3. For God so loved the world, verse 8, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17, Jesus is fulfilling this very thing. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved 
through him, verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe it is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. If you go back to John chapter 8 and you see what is happening here, Jesus does two things. He, he does place dignity and value on the life of this woman. And he does in his kindness say, therefore go and sin no more. If I were to ask you or if you were to ask me, have you ever been in a situation that you didn't want to be in? Have you ever done something that you didn't want to do? Have you ever seen, said, not seen, not said? Have you ever acted in a way that is wrong? The collective response would be, yes, it would be. And so our dilemma is, do we see the story and go, the safest place I can be in brokenness over my sin is God? Or should I continue to make skin coverings for myself and hide behind the guilt and shame that no longer belongs to me? What happens in your life when you feel like you are under the weight and guilt and shame? Just don't say it out loud, but think about it for a moment. What do we do when we are under the weight of guilt and shame? Just practically, what we choose more guilt and shame. We choose more guilt and shame. We choose to continue to do the very thing we don't want to do. What happens when we bring it to the light and when we say, Father, I have sinned. It is wrong. It was wrong. I was wrong. And I bring this to the table and say, the cross of Christ is enough for me. Give me the gift to no longer do this again. See, when we bring it to the table, when we bring it to the cross, when we bring it to God, I just want you to remember, with a broken and contrite heart, your conviction over sin is his invitation to step into what he has done on the cross for your behalf and the glory of his name. And I don't know what you walked in with. I don't need to know what you walked in with, but I do want you to walk out with this reminder. Neither do I condemn you, therefore go and sin no more. You've got, you've got to walk in that. It's ironic because, again, this is just after the Feast of Tabernacles, just after the Feast of Booths. This is just after when people are celebrating his faithfulness. And I was reading the account of one rabbi and he makes this point that in the court of women, which is exterior, okay, to the temple, right? So this is, again, in proximity to where Jesus is doing all these things. It says, during this feast and festival that the high priest's garments would be torn into little pieces, dipped in oil, and lit on fire. Okay? That's what's happening in this scene. The priestly garments have been taken apart, been dipped in oil. Where's that oil from? Garden of Gethsemane. What's in those gardens? The olive trees. Where did Jesus sweat blood? Among these very trees. And these trees that bear the fruit of olives are now holding on to these little bitty flickering flames. And it says, in the court of the women, just outside of the temple, all these little flames are burning. Olive oil that was crushed from the olives from the garden where he would soon be crushed. And it's in this context that John 8, 12 says, Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He's watching these priest garments that have been shredded into little pieces that used to be the living way that's no longer going to be the way. 
he's seeing these little fragments of clothing burn up from olive oil where he would eventually feel the weight of the sin of man. And against the backdrop of all these little lights, against the backdrop of the city of Jerusalem, against the burning lights in the temple and the flame and the smoke, with that in the backdrop, he says, I am the light of the world. And whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Come on with that. Come on with that. That's our Savior. He chooses to enter into these moments of historic celebration, and just like a golden pitcher of water, he says, nope, that's not where you're going to get satisfied. I am the living water, and so come to me if you're thirsty. In the backdrop of all these lights bound in, in situational ceremony and ritual, he says, no, I'm the light of the world, and if you walk with me, you can't walk in darkness. I want you to hear that today. Same guy that was writing these words much later in life, he said these words, and I want to read them over you this morning. They'll be on the screen from First John. I want you to listen to the action verbs, okay? That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, okay? Which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon, which we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen again and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing those things so that our joy may be complete. Look at verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him. And this is the message we proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin, all sin, all sin. And if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Chapter 2, my little children, my dear ones, my beloved ones, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I just want this to be so hidden in your heart that as you interact with your own stuff, and you got it, and as I wrestle with mine too, I have it, but more than what we have, we have him, and greater is he in us than the one that's in the world, and where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Should we go on sinning? By no means. 
but it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And this morning is just a very simple reminder that the safest, because of the cross, let me be real, real clear, because of the cross, only because of the cross, but the safest place you can be is before the holiness of God. So bring your sin and shame to the table. That woman was caught in the act, totally exposed. There was no hiding. And when she was met with the reality of the holiness of God, his kindness to her would result in a different life therein. There are stories later on, other ideas that it could be this woman who would later anoint the feet of Jesus with the tears of her head. We don't know who this woman was. We just know she was broken and caught. And she met the wonderful kindness of God that did not ignore her sin nor minimize her sin. He said, therefore, go and sin no more. And that is my encouragement to us, to me and to you today. Let the kindness of God in real time and space today lead you to repentance that you would be able to articulate to him the safest place I can be is before you, God, because no one else has done what you have done. Will you pray with me? We're so glad you listened to the Grace Auburn Church podcast. There's so much happening in the life of our church, and we could not be more excited about all that God is doing. For more information about ways that you can connect within the life of our church, go to our website, www.graceauburn.church. Thank you.